Yeah, it, it's kind of funny. Two years ago when we started this, we were telling everyone and people were like, oh, that's that's interesting. You know, not much more than that. In the last six months, everyone is interested. And it, I think it's really because they didn't see that bounce back in leasing. They didn't see people kind of flocking back to the office. And they're like, okay, now we're we're in trouble. Welcome to Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. I'm Isabella Farr. I'm Susanna Cavanaugh. And today we are looking at one of the great pipe dreams of the pandemic, the office to resi conversion. So when we were at the NARI conference in Atlanta last month, there was a panel on office to resi that really dialed in on how difficult these projects can be. Yeah, that was a reality check for me because over the past two years or so, I feel like I've mainly heard how these conversions can be great solutions. So on one hand, they would use up all of the empty office space we have. On the other, they could help ease the housing crisis. But few projects have moved forward for a handful of reasons. The foremost being, it's really tough to find an office building that's the right design for residential. You can't just demolish the entire thing and rebuild a residential tower. For sure. And the other thing is that just because a building seems empty doesn't mean it's not leased out. So some of these towers could have tenants with five-year leases. And, you know, developers aren't necessarily jumping at buildings that they can't tear up immediately. Exactly. So then, you know, tack on local governments who may not be offering incentives and you see where this great idea starts to deflate. Yeah, but despite those obstacles, some more tenacious developers, they're plowing ahead with these conversions. So we wanted to look at how those projects work where others fail. Later on, you'll hear from a project manager at Heinz, which is behind one of the first pandemic era conversions we've seen, and a studio director at Gensler, an architecture and design firm that created an algorithm that helps identify buildings best suited for a residential refresh. But first, the news. So as we expected, the Fed hiked rates for the sixth time this year. Chair Jay Powell greenlit yet another jumbo bump of 75 basis points on Wednesday and seemed less confident that the central bank could effectively pull down inflation and skirt a recession. Hi, Chair Powell. Nancy Marshall Genzer from Marketplace. <clears throat> I'm wondering, has the window for a soft landing narrowed? Do you still think it's possible? Has it narrowed? Yes. Is it still possible? Yes. Uh, I, I think um, I, we've always said it was going to be difficult, but I think to the extent rates have to go higher and stay higher for longer, it becomes harder to uh, to see the path. It's, it's narrowed. I would say the path has narrowed over the course of the last year, really. Um, hard to say. Hard to say. If you take one look at the brokerage world, though, it kind of seems like we're already in a recession. So as we've discussed, higher interest rates have pushed up mortgage rates, and that has effectively sidelined buyers and sellers. Mm -hmm. With demand dropping, we're seeing residential brokerages make cuts. The iBuying firm Opendora said it would axe 18% of its staff last week. And it's not just residential at this point. It's commercial brokerages that are struggling, too. During a third quarter earnings call, CBRE said that it would need to shave $300 million off of its balance sheet. And where is it looking to make those cuts? It's got to be labor. Yeah, exactly. And that decision comes as multifamily, one of the hottest markets over the past couple of years, isn't trading like it used to because of those rising interest rates. Your piece last week on that slowdown had a pretty shocking headline. Yeah. So the National Multifamily Housing Council said that sales had come to a, quote, virtual standstill, unquote, in October. 
The gist is that buyers aren't loving the returns they're seeing because rent growth is stagnating, financing is becoming more expensive, but at the same time, sellers aren't budging on prices yet. So if you put those two together, you get fewer transactions. Right. And it makes sense that the deals that are going through are the ones with low-cost debt attached. For example, last week, KKR broke a multifamily sales record in Philadelphia when it bought the presidential city complex for $357 million. But the firm's COO, Billy Butcher, told the Wall Street Journal that the deal was only possible because the mortgage on the portfolio was taken out when rates were lower. In New York, Kushner Companies is trying to bait buyers on that same line. So last week, the firm put about a third of its Manhattan holdings up for sale. That's 18 buildings. 11 of them are grouped as an East Village portfolio. And Kushner teased that chunk as tied to a fixed interest mortgage with a 3.34% rate. Let's compare that to the rate of a 10-year fixed rate multifamily mortgage right now. It's above 5% for the first time in a decade. And it's not just multifamily. The office market is obviously feeling the pain of higher rates and a down market too. We just had the scoop that Meta pulled out of a plan to fill a building that is under construction in Austin. In January, Zuckerberg agreed to occupy 33 floors, i.e. all of the office space in that building. And now it's opting to sublease that space. And I think that decision points to two trends happening simultaneously. So one of them is that Facebook just isn't doing that great. The firm missed earnings in the third quarter. It forecast a weak performance in the fourth, and shares took a nosedive on that news. They dropped to their lowest point since 2016. On their earnings call, executives also said that the tech giant would spend more than $3 billion to decrease its office space. The second trend is the lasting trouble we've seen across the office sector. Austin has boasted one of the strongest return to office trends in the country, yet Facebook isn't the only firm to drop its plans, right? Last week, the developer Kilroy Realty halted plans to build a 500,000 square foot tower, citing economic uncertainty. And that brings us to today's topic. So real estate, as of late, has become fixated on the challenges of turning unused office into much-needed residential. But the data tells us that despite those obstacles, these conversions are happening. So Rent Cafe reported last week that office-to-resi conversions have produced 25,000 new units over the past two years. And those completions, they outpace the units that new development has produced by 15 percentage points. So let's get into how these projects are being being realized. This podcast is sponsored by Dotted, the asset optimization platform with a white glove approach that helps you succeed and save time. We onboard all your asset data for you and you get a dedicated customer success rep so you can focus on what you do best and get the help you need when you need it. Get your white glove experience today by getting a demo at Dotted.com, D-O-T-T-I-D.com. So when I was poking around to try and find conversions that had actually worked out, I first stumbled upon Stephen Painter's article. Hi, I'm Stephen Painter from Gensler. I'm based in Toronto, and I'm one of the partners leading the architecture side of our business. Over the summer, Painter wrote this post for his firm called What We've Learned by Assessing More Than 300 Potential Office-to-Residential Conversions. And the punchline is a bunch of these buildings that the firm looked at are actually really well suited. So I thought that wide angle look would be a great place to start. So the real estate industry has been interested in office to resi conversions for quite some time. They definitely became a greater fixation during the pandemic, but most of the coverage I've seen of late has been about why these don't work. I was attracted to your article because it was 
you know, looking at why they might. So how did you decide to do this analysis of 300 buildings and why they could be a good fit for Office Teresi? Yeah, absolutely. So at the beginning of the pandemic and actually just a little before, we reached out to a lot of our clients and said, you know, what's worrying you? What are you uh, thinking about that could be an issue over the next few years? And a lot of them said that their real concern was with their, you know, 50 year old office buildings that people didn't want to be in much anymore. And obviously during the pandemic weren't in uh, at all, but also requ- required a lot of money for upgrades because um, they're really at the end of their life. Um, so we started looking at conversions, but as we were doing that, as you said, people were saying, well, they don't really work. We've, we've looked at them, they cost too much money, all that kind of thing. But at the same time, there was a lot of conversion projects that had been done and had been done very successfully, uh, including you know ones that we'd done in, in Philadelphia and so on. So we started to build this, this idea of doing an algorithm that could tell the difference between one that was going to work and one that really wasn't. And what we found in doing that was that both clients were, were right. The people who were saying it wasn't going to work were right because actually about 70% of the time it doesn't. It won't lay out properly. It won't make sense. It won't make money. But 30% of the time or around 30% of the time it will. Um, so being able to identify those in a couple of hours rather than weeks, being able to say, you know, this one has a good shot. This one really you shouldn't bother with. Um, being able to do that quickly was where we started being able to add value for people and and help them tell where they should be and what where they should focus their energy. Uh, and that's what's led, then led us from, you know, a few buildings to actually now over 400 that we've looked at um, and seeing where, you know, what cities are better, what parts of which cities have more chance, um, and then which specific buildings would make really good conversions. So I, I hadn't realized that you would build an algorithm to decide whether buildings would check out or not. How did you develop that? So the big thing for us was trying to take all of the design thinking that we do and distill it down to the most basic factors, You know, determining will something work or not. And so we looked at things like the floor plate size, the distance from the elevators to the windows, uh, how many floors there were, uh, how much parking you had and so on. And then we adjusted that slightly for every market. So what the algorithm starts to do is say, okay, if in your market you want a 600 square foot unit, that's your kind of uh, top of market or best best case use, how would that lay out on the floor plate? Does the quarter window depth mean that you'll end up with nice proportioned units that have a lot of glass and a lot of uh, you know, usable space, or do they end up really long and thin? And what you know is that desirable to people who live there or not? So it starts to look at all of those things and actually from just simple inputs from the floor plan we there's about 20 questions in the original in the kind of initial form that you fill out it then calculates over 100 different pieces of data you know how many units in the building what proportion they are what ceiling heights they would have and so on and then says is that going to be nice or not you know do people want to live there and a lot of this comes down to a simple question of like if you build it do people want to live in it and if we can answer that question then we've kind of answered the question of whether or not the project could be profitable Got it. Okay. So if we boil down a building to its bones, what makes it a good fit for one of these transformations? Yeah. So we found actually having studied a lot of them now, um, there's a few (laughs) kind of key factors. The floor plate size and the distance from the elevators to windows is absolutely key. You know, if you can't get a well-proportioned right-sized unit in the building, there's really no point in looking uh, any deeper. In doing that, we've actually found that there's types of buildings and types of cities that are much more likely to succeed than others. 
a lot of uh, 70s buildings that are you know, relatively small floor plate, relatively tall towers. Which works out perfectly because those are also the buildings where we're seeing the lowest return to office rates. If you strip everything away, you know, all of the ceiling tiles and desks and, and curtain wall, it really just looks like a, a residential building. So a lot of those projects we're starting to find, okay, you know, if it's late 60s, early 70s, it's relatively small floor plate and uh, tower-like, got a really good chance. And a great example of one of those buildings is one that Heinz actually picked up to redevelop into a residential tower, Salt Lake City's South Temple Tower. It was built in 1966. Here's Heinz's Dusty Harris, the lead on that project. So we had tried to buy this office building a couple of times over the last 10 years, call it. And uh, during the pandemic, the, the keys were given back to the bank. So we knew the reasons why it was failing. We knew what would make a good apartment building. And we were able to sort of mesh those two things together. But some of the, some of the specifics here, it has a very small floor plate. It's 12,000 feet. It makes it difficult to lease to large office tenants. So in a competitive office market, you're really leasing to small tenants and that's a ton of work and it's a difficult thing to lease up a building of this size. It also has short ceiling heights. Yeah, the ceiling height is interesting actually because a lot of office buildings, especially the ones that are less desirable, were built with about an 11 foot floor to floor height. Now when you get in your, your big ducts and everything that you need for an office building, the, the uh, false ceilings, you end up with about eight feet clear. Now that is not good. You know, People sat in an eight foot uh, office space generally don't like it feels very uh, dark and low you strip all of that out and then you put in residential servicing residential layouts and so on you're going to get about a, a 10 foot six ceiling and that's better than anyone builds condos right now or rentals so if you can get one that is you know bad for office you know a bit too low for office it's probably going to be top of market for residential you go taller than that and you know good office space might have 14 feet floor to floor and you'll end up with a 13 foot six residential ceiling it's actually just kind of a bit of wasted space people won't pay more for the difference between 10 foot six and and 13 foot six that's that's funny i'm the room i'm in right now has i don't know how tall it has to be like a 15 foot ceiling and i don't know what to do with the space <laughs> yeah exactly and it gets particularly weird in you know washrooms and other areas where it's a smaller room and it's just super tall and you're like oh that's it's odd. Yeah, it must feel like you're in a, a well, not ideal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the South Temple Tower hits that ceiling height sweet spot. 10 foot is, is what we're building or designing to down the street. And that's what this has in a concrete structure. So it actually is already constructed the way that we're designing a brand new tower. Floor plate, ceiling height, distance from the elevators. Those are all key, but the Heinz building also has other perks. The parking ratio is not enough for office, but it happens to be... Uh, perfect, if not a little bit of excess parking for residential. There are six elevators. We really only need four. So we can use two of the elevators to run new vertical uh, equipment, vertical risers. Um, and then the other thing that I think is important is it was only 50% leased, as I mentioned. And uh, dealing with existing tenants and, and clearing out the building so that it can be uh, converted to residential is a pretty big issue. So to work with those tenants, Heinz was transparent about its plans to redevelop the building even before it had committed to purchasing it. And ultimately, it will buy out some of the tenants whose leases are still existing. 
As Harris mentioned, for developers looking at a redesign, those tenants who are still existing can be a bugbear, and they can ultimately dissuade some from approaching a project. But Painter says actual leasing rates are becoming less of an issue. Landlords have kind of wised up to the reality that many tenants in their Class C buildings are ultimately not going to be there in a handful of years. I've been through plenty of Class C buildings in the last well, couple of weeks, actually, where you walk around and there's like two people or three people in the whole building. And it's, it's really scary. So regardless of what the actual kind of lease vacancy is, I think a lot of those landlords are, are walking around their buildings and being like, wow, no one is going to renew their lease in this building and it's that future that's scaring them right now it's it's not today it's five years when these leases start to run out what are we going to do um, and obviously in architecture projects if you want to do something in five years you've got to start thinking about it today whether or not a landlord wants to sell at a reasonable price is another issue entirely and it's one that weighs heavily on whether or not the financials for a project can pencil out. You'd have two nearly empty office buildings next to each other on the same street. And one uh, owner would say, you know, I bought this building 10 years ago for $150 a square foot. That's what it's worth, even though it's you know empty and losing money. By contrast, the, you know, the guy next door is saying, my office building is empty. It doesn't matter what I paid for it. It's worth almost nothing. And that, you know, that idea of what the existing value is or the, the existing land value is can really impact whether or not people think these projects are going to work. If they're overvaluing the asset right now, then that, that kind of cost drags on the, uh, on the pro forma. If they're more realistic about it or if it really is struggling, then, you know, then it doesn't and the, the project has more chance of going ahead. What we're finding now, though, is that a lot of those projects that have, or those buildings that have been losing money consistently for the last two years that haven't seen a rebound in occupancy, they're actually, you know, being handed back to the to the lenders effectively. The the owners are saying, we don't know what to do, we're not going to make money, and they will effectively default on it and uh, return it. So when that does happen, it resets the value and then projects can start to move forward. Which is what happened with Heinz's building, and one of the reasons the conversion made sense, but the building's location also added to that. We don't know this to be true, but we think it to be true, which is there's likely a cost premium to converting existing office buildings to residential than building ground up. And so with that in mind, you have to think about why would you want to do this if you could build cheaper? And, and one of the reasons why we wanted to do it here is because the location is just fabulous. It's across the street from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints headquarters. It's down the street from the University of Utah and the governor's mansion. It's across the street from the City Creek Center, which is the large shopping center, lots of restaurant amenities and things like that. So, And I do think others that are considering a project like this, you have to have complete conviction on the underlying real estate. As Painter mentioned, though, not all office buildings are being priced at a discount, which is an obstacle to more of these projects moving forward. It's likely to require that office buildings become cheaper. What do you think the sort of tipping point would be as far as pricing? So for the prices to come down, because, you know, a lot of office owners for a long time, some of them are capitulating now, but they wanted to believe that tenants would come back and they can hold on to it and it would be worth its while. And like as an office landlord, I'm sure you were of that mindset a bit too. So like what has to give for prices to come down? I think it's, that's a hard question to answer because I think it's market specific. And, you know, we sometimes talk about varying stages of grief as it relates <laughs> to office buildings. And I think owners are going to be in various stages of grief, but the reality is many of these office buildings are not going to fill up with office tenants again. And, you know, when those office Landlords come to that realization, I think will be market specific and probably depends on their own courage as well. But 
my personal belief is that's going to continue to happen. And, and, you know, the real estate development community is going to have to continue to get creative with how to, how to solve this problem. Have you seen interest in these projects increase recently? Yeah, it, it's kind of funny. Two years ago when we started this, I, we were telling everyone and people were like, oh, that's, that's interesting. And, you know, not much more than that. In the last six months, everyone is interested. And it, I think it's really because they didn't see that bounce back in, in leasing. They didn't see people, um, they didn't see people kind of flocking back to the office and they're like, okay, now we're, we're in trouble. You know, we've got to do, we've got to do something. So that's meant that in the last, you know, six months, we're not calling people. They're calling us, uh, all of the time. And we, we did a webinar recently to show how the, the system worked and we had, you know, over 300 different clients uh, on that from around the US and you know we just put out the invite uh, and they they joined we're also seeing a lot of just cold calls and a lot of people you know reading articles listening to podcasts um, and hearing about it and being like okay we need to we need to get involved in this deconstruct airs every monday wherever you get your podcasts so subscribe now Next week, we're digging into Compass Earnings. Tune in then.